And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. Good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is the hump day edition of The Real Investment Show as we grind through the week. It is also Fed Decision Day. Yes, it is the day everybody's been waiting on all week. Here it is. This afternoon, the Federal Reserve will announce their 25 basis point rate hike. Hopes are high that the Fed will now make language in their statement that they are now done hiking rates. The the proverbial pause is here. Now, there's also the Fed fund features, which are expecting the Fed to cut rates starting later this year. But again, I wouldn't expect anything from the Fed on that front, considering that inflation still remains very high. But we do expect them to come out today and say, we're going to hike rates. Probably rates are now sufficiently restrictive enough to bring inflation down to our target rate. Now, what that suggests is they're going to hold rates there at 5% and not cut them anytime soon until inflation comes down towards that 2% target level. However, the problem for the Fed is going to become the fact that it is likely that inflation is going to stall on its decline around 4% and become much more entrenched at that level. That could be a problematic for the Fed at that point. And, and again, we'll have to see how, how the, the Fed handles that when we get there. But that's going to be their first big hurdle as the inflation on year-over-year comparison starts to kind of stagnate as we get further kind of out into the time frames. But expect that today. Uh, yesterday, markets sold off a, a good bit. We were down over 1% yesterday on, on the NASDAQ and the S&P. Uh, kind of cracked that 20-day moving average yesterday, closed right on it. So again, support still holding here. But again, that also keeps our sell signal in place. So despite the fact we had this little two-day rally uh, at the end of last week, that did not reverse the sell signal. And again, the sell signals just for some reason, they just tend to work well. Uh, kind of tends to tell you that markets are, you know, you know, kind of at, at an exhaustion level, at least in the near term. And just, it doesn't mean that stock prices have to correct. You know, even though we call it a sell signal, it doesn't mean prices have to correct. It just means that they just really don't go much of anywhere. We're just kind of stagnating. And that's all we've really been doing now. Uh, for the last couple of weeks, we really haven't gone much of anywhere in the markets. That 4,200 level, which was our target that we had set back on March the 15th for this rally, continues to be kind of top-end resistance right now. And that's just a kind of a level the market can't get above at the moment. But again, just kind of keeping a watch on this. Today, uh, the most important thing is not the Fed hiking rates. That is you know, that is pretty much baked in the cake that they're going to hike 25 basis points. It's all about the language now right? It is really about the language. What does the Fed say? Because the Fed now has in their hands, they have uh, the, the bank lending standard data. They, they know what's going on with bank liquidity at this point. They, they, have, they already have the pre-release of the employment data later this week. Jobless claims that come out tomorrow, they already know that data. So again, they're going to be making some decisions today based on that data. And, and what's going to be important is what they say about kind of future policy and what their expectations are. So the Fed's, gonna, the, the, the Fed's gonna be as muddled as usual in their statement, and the market's gonna try to parse that out. Now, uh, again, you know, I would expect this market to try to rally some on that data. If the Fed comes out today and says, hey, we're done hiking in some, some form or fashion, 
wouldn't be surprised to see this market kind of pop up by the end of the day. So again, just kind of keeping a watch on that. Outside of that, though, there are some uh, certainly some concerns uh, in other areas of the markets. One thing I'm going to talk about this morning with Danny Ratliff is what if we're already in a recession and we just don't know it yet, right? That's, the, that's kind of the big question. One of the things that kind of tells us that we've got more, you know, kind of more trouble going on in the economy than not is oil prices. And after spiking up in uh, March, April, and May of, of last year and getting up to that $120, $130 level, on oil prices. Oil prices closed yesterday below $70 at $69.39 and again have just been in a steady decline now uh, really ever since July of last year. So again if it's you know what you would expect is that with economic weakness, a retrenchment of consumer demand, etc, oil prices will come down because those are driven by supply demand you know imbalances. And again that's that's kind of what says here about the economy and particularly over the last two days, uh, this morning, futures are pointing down fairly sharply, about another $3 or so um, on oil prices. And that's, that's just really a function of potentially slower economic growth as we get there. So, you know, this idea that we're going to be in a recession is one thing. But the, the real question, we talked about this in our newsletter uh, weekend before last, talking about a rolling recession, which is we don't really have a technical recession in terms of the National Bureau of Economic Research actually saying, oh, we're in a recession but we have this kind of rolling hit to the economy in different areas that impact the consumer, bank crises, those type of things. Markets are able to kind of work through this because these hits are being spread out. They're not occurring all at once. So markets aren't really going anywhere, but uh, again, the impact to the economy is happening at different timeframes kind of all around the economy. So you have this idea of this kind of this rolling recession through the economy, even though it doesn't trigger that momentary kind of, you know, the, the floor drops out of the markets and the economy and everything just kind of falls apart at once. You know, that's kind of one of the things that may be going on here. So we'll talk about some that some more this morning with Danny Ratliff. But uh, again, just kind of pay attention to oil prices. That tells you a lot about what's going on uh, with the economy. Ten-year treasury yields also, um, you know, that's going to be kind of the big question here over the course of the next few days in particular as we get towards the end of the month, the whole debt ceiling debate issue, which is going to be a topic in our newsletter this weekend. This idea of a debt default, what does that mean for interest rates? Lots of concern about that. But interest rates have really just stalled here. Um, you know, and, and if you're taking a look at you know, uh, interest rates as a function, right around 3.4, 3.5, we've just been stuck here now really for the last couple of months. So despite the fact the Fed's hiking rates on the short end, the Fed does control the very short end of the curve, right? They control the one month, the three month, the one year, the two year. But outside of that, the economy and inflation and wage growth control the longer end. And that's where uh, interest rates that we talk about, the 10-year Treasury rate, really kind of resides. And that's telling you that we are really moving much toward, and again, this idea of this rolling recession, that we are in a very slow growth economy at this point. And if something does eventually buckle here with the Fed um, and higher interest rates, et cetera, then yields are going to be much lower here over the course of time. So again, just, you know, we pay very close attention to the 10-year Treasury yield because it is really the economic indicator to pay attention to. Anyway, we've got a lot of stuff to get into this morning uh, as we go through kind of a, a lot of this analysis, talking about this idea of are we in a recession already and we just don't kind of recognize it yet. 
And that's always the case, right? Because the National Bureau of Economic Research always dates in hindsight after they get their data in. And, and again, we haven't seen a lot of the revisions to this data. So, you know, the, you know, the idea of economic growth and GDP and those type of things, you know, those have yet to be negatively revised. We may not see that till next year, but there's a lot of indications within the economy that that recession may already be here. But it's just a, a very slow kind of stealth recession that may be starting to bottom sooner than many people expect. And that's going to have some impact to where we invest capital over the course of the next couple of years. And, and particularly as we start to see inventory cycles bottom, manufacturing cycles bottom, etc. Um, that's going to be the shift from defensive back to cyclical kind of exposure in portfolios. Anyway, lots of stuff to get into this morning, like I said, with Danny Radliff. So stick around. Be sure you get by the website. Our latest blog post is out from uh, yesterday. It's on the website. Michael Leibowitz's new article on the website this morning as well. Realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be right back. daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Retirement's not what it used to be, and knowing how health insurance works after you leave your job is vital. Our next Lunch and Learn will tackle transitioning to Medicare Thursday, May 11th with Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso. How will Medicare work with the insurance you already have? What are the deadlines you need to know for signing up for Medicare? Register now for our Transitioning to Medicare Lunch and Learn with Ratliff and Rosso at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Just for the break, just talking a little bit about, you know, this idea of being in a rolling recession. And we wrote an article about this. Uh, it's in weekend before last newsletter. So if you go to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, click on the investing tab, click on the newsletter. On the right-hand side is our complete list of archives. So you can see all of our past newsletters that we write. But uh, so it was, it was last weekend. Uh, we Sorry, weekend before last, talking about this idea of a rolling recession. And this has been one of the consternations. Everybody keeps expecting the bottom to fall out of the market just any moment. Now it's like, well, why aren't we all in cash, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's clear the market's going to fall apart. But yet, since April of last year, the market has gone nowhere. We're at the same level as we were April of last year, despite all of the angst in the markets, right? Um, the debt ceiling issue or you know, the Fed hiking rates or the housing market or the IPO SPAC market or, you know, so forth and so on. You know, auto sales, they're going to plummet and go to zero. And then auto sales have been rising for the last several months. So, you know, all these expectations of economic and financial disaster have not come out, you know, in the wash, so to speak. And the markets have been able, because these impacts to the market have been spread out over time, the markets were able 
to adjust for them. So yes, you know, an event would happen, the market would sell off. You go back and look over the last year as an example in the market. It's very choppy, right? We had, you know, big rallies of 20% and then big declines that took that rally away. And then we had another rally of 20% and another big decline. Um, at the end of the day, we haven't gone anywhere, but it's been a real rocky up and down period. So it certainly feels worse than it actually is. But all said, markets are doing fine. We're up about 7% this year. And, you know, really things are doing well, despite the fact that we've had Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank and a variety of other, you know, bank issues. But again, once again, these issues have been spread out, giving the markets enough time to absorb that impact, process it, understand how it impacts earnings and the, and, and the real risk to the economy and the markets, and then rally back. And then the next event happens. And so here we are today facing the Federal Reserve with their latest interest rate hike. What does that mean? You know, previously we've seen them come out and hike interest rates and say something like, oh, we're, we're nowhere near our peak in rates and the market would sell off. We've also seen times as of late when the market comes out, uh, the market rallies after the Fed speech because the Fed now, the market now believes the Fed is going to stop hiking rates and maybe even start cutting rates. I would probably expect something to that tune today. Wouldn't surprise me at all to see this market up 1% by the end of the day. Wouldn't surprise me. Um, after the Fed makes their announcement, which probably will be today, rates are sufficiently tight enough for us to get inflation back to 2%. We'll see. I could be entirely wrong. Market could be down by the end of the day. But that's that's where we are in the markets. Well, do you think Jerome Powell is fed up with politicians getting in the way once again, <laughs> right? Because now we have lawmakers coming and saying, hey, you don't need to hike any longer. But yet his sentiment has been, and I mean, he's been pretty steadfast in what he said, is that, hey, we'd rather overshoot this than undershoot this. Right. Now we've we seen, have tools. Yeah, we've seen cracks in the financial system, but we haven't seen that economic devastation quite yet. Mm -hmm. So- He's really between a rock and a hard place in a lot of ways. And, you know, what he says, I think, is going to be really interesting and telling as far as what happens next. Because, look, if he stops hiking, okay, what happens to the yield curve? What happens to the overall economic conditions? I don't think it's this, this long-term rosy picture, per se, mm -hmm. like a lot of people are anticipating. If they stop hiking historically, that's not necessarily a great thing. Right. But, again, normally when they stop hiking, right, markets have been rising Mm -hmm. And here's the difference this time, right? It's true. Um, normally, when the Fed's hiking rates, the market's still rallying because there's a lot of momentum in the market. So the Fed's hiking rates and, and the markets are going, it's fine, they're hiking rates, everything's fine, it's Goldilocks economy, whatever, so forth and so on, a.k.a. 2007. Then the event happens, right? The Fed then pauses because they start seeing some cracks in the foundation of the economy. So they go, oh, well, we're probably you know sufficiently tight here, but the market's still okay, still haven't fallen apart yet. And then something breaks, and then you get the big sell-off as they're cutting rates to handle that event of whatever they right. cause. This time, and, and by the way, during that decline, when the Fed is cutting rates, markets typically divide, d decline by 20 to 30%, somewhere in that range. Well, we were down 20% last year while the Fed was hiking rates. So the markets kind of front-loaded that decline which was interesting this time. That, that is a difference between this time and next time. And one of the reasons why I think a lot of people are getting frustrated with this idea that, you know, the markets have this other big kind of shoe to fall here, it's kind of already fallen. And if you take a look, and, and there's a, you know, a good bit of analysis that's now starting to come out looking at inventory levels for businesses, which have been drawn down a lot after, the, after that big surplus we built up in 2021. 
2022. So those inventory surpluses have come down. Take a watch at what's happening between the Japanese yen and the U.S. dollar as well. That's a really good indicator for basically bottoms of economic cycles. So in other words, we're about to get into, and I think about this just from a standpoint of economic growth, if I sell all my inventory, I've got to restock that inventory at some point, which requires manufacturing, right? So you are going to get to a point, and we're probably closer to that point than not, of having an inventory restocking cycle, which will support economic growth. That doesn't mean you're going to get 5% economic growth out of it, but it does suggest that you're going to have activity that could keep the economy out of a recession, again, due to timing, right? It's a timing function. And the fact that, you know, if you're expecting this recession to occur, that's fine. Um, but the problem is, is that we've kind of front-loaded that inventory cycle that could provide support for the economy during a period where you would expect normally to have an economic recession. So again, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying that there are some cycles have gotten offset with each other over the course of the last couple of years that isn't in the normal cycle. So you've got some things that are there potentially to support the economy just in the normal reflexive rebound of activity that you need just to keep an economy going, whether it's in a recession or not. So you're basically saying this time is different because of the pandemic, all of the different issues that that forced upon, you know, the economy, what's going on. So, you know, cycles are not typically, they're a little bit differently in tune compared to what mm -hmm. they are today, right? Yeah. So so if you go back to, now that's an interesting point too, because if you go back to 2019, right? So before 2020, before the pandemic, 2019, September of 2019, the Federal Reserve is doing repo to a large degree. Uh, they had already cut rates to zero back in July of that year. By September, they are in the middle of doing repo to bail out some banks, uh, mostly hedge funds at that time. It was Citadel and others that were in trouble. And, at the, at, and while that's happening, the National Federation of Independent Business, which is a great leading economic indicator for recessions, was also signaling a recession. Now, Everybody at that point was denying that there was any recession, you know, even on the horizon, right? It wasn't even out there. And all those indicators are about 18 months in advance of whatever's going to happen in the economy. So we were already, so the point is, is we were already headed towards a natural recession within the economy that could have occurred 18 to 24 months from that point. But then we, then to your point, Danny, it's a good point. We kind of front-loaded that recession because we shut, we manually shut down the economy. So we created a recession, even though there was a recession already potentially in the works, right? So we pulled forward this whole cycle faster than it should have been, and then we stuck five trillion dollars worth of liquidity into the markets to restart it again, which none of that is normal. Which is, and that's what I'm saying. The one thing that we're all looking at is historical data. Going based on this historical data. This is what happens, and this is why we think there's going to be a recession. But the recession that we caused in 2020 and the, and the injection of monetary liquidity was very different than what we've seen in any previous economic cycle, which means the outcome. And, this is, and all I'm saying is I'm not trying to make the case that we're absolutely not going to have a recession. All I'm, all I'm putting out there is this idea that we need to also consider the fact that what we did in 2020 and 2021 may have skewed this cycle to some degree to where some of the economic data doesn't play as well as we suspect it would. Does that make sense? Yeah.
Yeah. No, it, it does. I think it changes the, how we have to look at this as well in so many different ways that, you know, I think we're, we're all saying, okay, well, I'm, I'm, here, I'm getting a lot of calls, right? Obviously, right. yesterday, people were concerned. It was interesting. Monday, we wake up, First Republic's, you know, they're gone. JP Morgan scooped them up. Yep. And yet, market was relatively flat. It was exactly flat. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then yesterday, everybody kind of woke up and said, oh, shoot, what does this mean? Right. And so I think that, you know, one of the bigger problems right now is that people are looking at, you know, if you're an investor in financials, you're taking another look at your portfolio. But if you are a depositor, you probably breathe a little, you have a, a sigh of relief compared to an investor. So we're seeing, and I think what a lot of people are, are not um, you know, taking into account is that they're just looking at, oh my gosh, banks are down. It's going to be another 2008. I, I received a lot of calls yesterday afternoon. Like, what is happening? And we have to separate those two things, I think. Oh, and by the way, just yes, yesterday the, the market was down over 1%. Our portfolio was flat yesterday. So because of the way we're, we're hedged and built for this, for this market. So again, I understand all the headline concerns. I get it. But how portfolios act is entire, can be entirely different. So, Well, I, I think that's a good point, too. I mean, we're pretty comfortable in this environment underperforming on the, to the upside if this is something that's going to be short-lived versus right. you know, getting over our skis and then all of a sudden seeing a big pullback and say, well, we thought it was going to keep going up. <laughs> right. But I think that's why it's important to follow technicals because right now the, what I'm hearing more and more of is the emotional side of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, look, it's headline-driven media stuff. And this is what I keep talking about is that you've got to turn off that media. If you're going to manage money and if you're going to manage your own money in particular, you've got to turn off the media headlines because it is going to drive you insane because what they're putting up here on television is anything that gets clicks and views, right? There's there's an old line. Brent will tell you this. There's an old line in, in television media says, if it bleeds, it leads. And... That's that will throw you off your base. Focus on what the economy and the markets are doing. And and here's what the markets are doing. Despite all the, the negative headlines, markets haven't gone anywhere. And they've been in a bullish trend since October. Yeah, but people's portfolios haven't either, right? And so there's frustration. Be right back. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com And welcome back to the show this morning, of course, as uh, we're kind of heading into Fed Day. Every All eyes are turned to the Fed, what they're going to say today. Futures this morning, Dow, uh, S&P's up about 10 points, Dow's up about 48. Um, commodity prices down. And again, we we're talking about, you know, kind of this economic recession, as I pointed out earlier. One of the kind of the key indicators for recession is oil prices because those tend to track economic growth cycles over time and makes sense, right? Demand within the economy. Um, oil prices under a good bit of pressure this morning as well. Uh, WTI accrued is down about three percent this morning. So again, this is just kind of this you know this conundrum we have going on in the markets right now between what the markets are doing, and again, markets have been rallying really ever since October lows. 
Um, you know, they're still down uh, from where we were last January by, you know, we're roughly down about 13% from where we were last January. But, you know, this year we're up about 8% so far, just, you know, looking at, you know, the kind of headline S&P, sorry, about 7%. Kind of looking at headline S&P index. Now, that's been driven by. Now, you don't have that return if you own anything other than Microsoft and Google and NVIDIA and Tesla. That's pretty much it. Um, those about four or five stocks in the index have made up 90% of the return since the beginning of this year. So if you owned an S&P index only, you've got that return. Or if you own those four stocks, you get that return. But <laughs> it's, it's about the same. If you own anything else, bonds, consumer cyclical staples, whatever, you don't have that return because the market as a whole is not doing that well. We have a very narrow, we have the most narrow breadth of the market since 1998. And I won't have to remind you what happened in 2000 following that narrow breadth. So it is something to pay very close attention to. You can't have very narrow breadth for an extended period of time without it causing problems for the markets ultimately. So again, just something to pay attention to. Again, nothing to go panic about. And again, you know, there's a lot of very negative headlines and podcasts. And I, was, I went through a list the other day of all kind of the negative headlines out there. You know, the world's going to end and crisis and all this. And yet we just kind of keep plugging along here, right? And I'm not, and, and again, I just want to be clear. I'm not saying that we can't have an economic downturn because we certainly can. There are, there are a ton of economic indicators that suggest the economy should get weaker this year. I'm not saying that can't happen at all. I'm not saying that in the in the slightest. I'm just saying it hasn't happened yet. But but I think that's an interesting point too, right? You're saying that many of these companies that are in these indexes are actually down, but there's a handful holding them up. Yeah. So a lot of the devastation has been done. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's, you know, if you go look at, and so this is what I was talking about when I was talking about rolling recessions, right? Um, you go back to look at 2020. Um, we started uh, 20, uh, sorry, 2022. My apologies. You go back to 2022. You start the year out, right? We're at an all-time high. Over the course of the next three months, we absolutely, actually six months in total, but we absolutely slaughter stocks. You know, and we talked many times in the show in 2022 about the ARC Fund, which was, you know, Kathy Wood's ETF of the innovative solution technologies, right? All those disruptor companies. Those stocks were down 70, 80, 90 percent from their highs. So, again, while the whole market didn't come down that much, the under the internals of that market came down a lot. And companies like Apple, Microsoft, and Google were holding the markets up. And, and we've talked about this passive indexing before, this, this, this uh, effect of passive indexing, which is when you have 30% of every dollar going in to ETFs and everybody's buying ETFs now, that's keeping the markets elevated more than you would think because, you know, you think about the iceberg, right? The, the tip of the iceberg you see above the water is only a small fraction of what's below the water. Well, that very small group of stocks was keeping the whole market afloat despite the fact of the internal devastation. In fact, if you take a look at the average retail investor returns last year, the, the market was down 18%-ish last year. In 2022, the market S&P was down about 18%-ish last year after, you know, once you include dividends. The average retail investor was down between 26 and 30%. Why the difference? Well, because they owned those other stocks. 
that they didn't own just Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and NVIDIA. They owned the other stuff. So, And they didn't own oil, right? Remember in 2022, the market was down 18%. If you just owned energy stocks, you were up 20% for the year. So again, it was a very selective market year as to what was going on, but that's also why it's deceiving about what's going on in the markets today versus what you think should be happening. Because we still have that same effect going on right now. People are buying ETFs. It's fueling those top 10 stocks, which is, again, once again, keeping the markets afloat relative to what's going on with a lot of these economic indicators. And, and that's an important thing you have to understand is that the market structure has changed. This is not your dad's, your father's market structure, <laughs> where back in the day when we actually pick stocks for a living, you know, you could, you could, you know, pick fundamentals and those type of things and it worked. It is now a function of this passive index, in fact, which makes it very challenging. But I think that investors that still understand the fundamentals, understand technicals, have a leg up in this environment when we're coming out of this. Right. You're going to be much better off than, and look, I think that there's going to be a lot of ETFs that are going to do well as well. And some people aren't comfortable with individual right. stocks. So that's okay. ETFs have been a really easy way for people to gain access to the markets, lower their cost. They've been a, they've been a good thing all in all that you can trade them easier, which, well, we could, we could argue could be good or bad. But I think that, like you said, it's changed the game quite a bit. On the flip side of this, I think that you're going to see upside in both. But if you can really pick individual stocks, I think you're going to have a leg up. Yeah. Well, again, you know, um, you know, one of the stocks that we, that we like a lot, it's a, it's a deep value stock, has a, has a nice dividend yield to it. But, you know, you think about where we are in the economic cycle, what are people going to have to do more of, right? When you have job losses or, you know, slower economic growth, people are going to have to do more stuff at home. So one of the companies that we love right now is Stanley Black & Decker. It's extremely cheap and well-valued, and we love our friends over at Stanley Black & Decker. And, but it's a really well-run company. They've made a lot of acquisitions, but they're positioned for this, I'm going to have to do stuff at home type situation. And, you know, when you start thinking about where people are going to have to, and this stock has been really beaten up last year. I mean, it's just, it, it trades very cheap relative to the market. It's a fundamental, it's a fundamental play, right? And if you looked at it, you go, man, I want to own that because it's not performing right now. Right. But that's the value part, right? So this is the trick with value investing. You've got to buy stuff that's a value that has a fundamental foothold and they're digesting a really big acquisition they made, almost a $2 billion acquisition. They've been digesting that. And that really puts the company in a good foothold position going forward. And again, they make great tools. They, make, they provide you know, great opportunities. And for people that have to fix up their house and those type of things, you know, they're going to be needing to buy tools, right? And, and if I can't hire somebody, if I can't afford to hire somebody to come do it, I'm going to have to do it myself. And so that is kind of that bet on a slower economic environment that people have to do more DIY projects around their house. That is a company that's well positioned for that. And, and so those are things that we're looking at on a longer term time frame, you know, on a stock picking basis. Um, CVS Health is another one, right? We're all getting older. We're all going to need more drugs. <laughs> so, and, and the more I have to deal with the Fed, the more drugs I'm going to need. So, you know, 
CVS is, is another one. Trades at a 0.29 times price to sells, right? It's extremely cheap, you know, versus McDonald's that trades at, at tech stock valuations of nine times price to sells. That's a company that's very subject to a slowdown in consumer spending, right? So those are things you're going to be looking at, but those aren't performing right now. So those drag on performance because they're not Apple, Microsoft, Google, and NVIDIA, right? Now, we own Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon. We own those companies, right? But we also own these other companies, which drag on performance today, but also just like yesterday, the market's down 1% or portfolio's flat because those value stocks pick up the slack and they limit that. They're a hedge against market volatility. So just something to think about. Full disclosure, we do own all those companies you just yeah, mentioned. Just They're just not said. a recommendation. Yeah, right. No, um, I'm just I'm just talking about companies that we own, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, I'm not recommending you buy them. I'm just telling you we own them. Well, I think those are really good points. If you look back to 2008, what were most people doing? They were fixing up their homes. They were, could not go out and buy something new. There was devastation in the real estate market. And so at that point, what did we see that performed really well? Your Home Depots, your Lowe's. Mm -hmm all those same similar types of companies where people had to, to DIY it. And I think we're going to continue to see that where right now, look at inventories are really low. Um, you're seeing that if you wanted to downsize, you can't do it or you can do it, but your, your mortgage is going to be the same right. because rates have gone up so much. So, you know, start thinking about where is, you know, like we always talk about Wayne Gretzky says, don't skate to where the puck is, but where it's going. That's kind of one of these types of plays with that. CVS Health and any really healthcare, if, if they're good fundamentally, I mean, you think about that, what's this demographic doing? What's the country? I mean, and it really globally, I think there's a lot like of upside said, in that. And the more Fed keeps hiking rates, the more drugs I'm going to need. Well, just go see a doctor. Go. <laughs> then you'll have to go see another doctor, another doctor. And... I do everything I can to avoid seeing a doctor. Yeah, right? I do as well. So that's why I work out every day, eat right. I, I hate going to doctors. So plus it's just too expensive cheaper to work out that is true all right come back after the break married couples leaving 401k money on the table um danny one of danny's favorite topics <laughs> between that and hsa so <laughs> we'll get to that right after the break don't go away you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com and welcome back to show this morning so got a 401k plan you realize you're probably leaving a whole lot of money on the table. A lot of people do this and they don't even realize it. And, you know, it's something that um, you need to really be thinking about because, again, you know, what people, there's two things that people miss about 401k plans is that one, in many cases, not every case, but in many cases, it comes with free money. And everybody should want free money. And, and this is the one thing I've never understood why people don't contribute to their 401k plan, because if you do just even just enough to capture the entirety of the company match, it is still free money that the company is giving you. It's a it's a bonus. It's it's additional income for you that is coming in tax deferred 
if you're in the 401k plan, a, a tax deferred 401k plan, not a, not a Roth 401k. But there's just a lot of benefits. And also, too, you're again, you're putting money. And again, I know there's a lot of, of push for people saying, hey, put your money into a Roth 401k. That comes out after tax. And that certainly has a lot of benefits. Right? And I don't want to, to deride the benefits of a Roth 401k. So if you've got plenty of income and you're doing okay at home, Right. You've, in other words, you've got plenty of cash flow at home. You're paying your bills. You're able to save a few shekels on the side at home. And so you can afford to pay all the taxes now. Do the Roth 401k. Absolutely a good idea because that grows tax free over time. Right. But you got to pay your taxes up front. One of the things that, you know, I find challenging with individuals is like, well, I can't afford to contribute to the 401k. I need everything I get coming home so I can just pay my bills. Well, first of all, you've got a budget problem at home. So let's start there. But the second thing is, is that what a lot of people don't realize with a regular tax deferred 401k is that you can contribute to a 401k. And since that comes out pre-tax, you actually wind up coming home with about the same amount of money. Right. So you can make those contributions to at least get the match of the money and still bring home about the same amount of money. Right. And again, if you're that tight, we need to be thinking about your budget at home. So but anyway, there's some other things that people are doing that wind up leaving a lot of money on the table. Danny? Well, I, I think the one thing that we're seeing, especially with married couples, is that they're not coordinating how they actually go out and contribute to 401ks. And so what I mean by that is that we can take advantage of certain plans may pay more than others. And so if you get a one-for-one one match up to a certain amount versus your spouse gets a, uh, a 50% match up to a certain amount, well, you'd want to max the one that's going to get you paid more. So a lot of matching right. dollars are inevitably left on the table. And I think one thing that explains a lot of this is that, one, we probably don't look at this as often as, as most people don't as they should, nor do they coordinate, okay, you get X amount, I get X amount. And a lot of ways, the system's set up and designed where it should be a good thing, where you know many of these plans will say, okay, each year we're going to increase your match by 1%. And so you kind of set it and forget it in that part of it. So people are more in tune with investing the funds versus how they're actually coordinating their their contributions to take full advantage of the match. And there's been studies that show that the average couple will leave about $682 on the table per year, Lance. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of money, especially if you're not maxing that out. We're finding that that actually ends up being about 10% of the overall contributions per year. So this is a big number over time. What ideally we should be doing is that looking and coordinating each spouse's contribution. So it may be that if you're not, if you're not going to max out, like you mentioned, you can put funds into these accounts, especially when you're talking about pre-tax. You know, we do love Roths and Roth 401ks have no income limitations. So, you know, highly suggest you you explore that. But you need to be coordinating the benefits properly to make sure that, hey, you know, spouse A, you get a much better match. It goes to a higher limit. Let's go ahead and max that 401k out or get all the match that you can and then turn around and invest in spouse B's plan. Right. So you're still taking home the same amount, but you're actually getting more bang for your buck longer term. Right. And it's interesting because I, I do hear stories, you know, from couples and they'll say, well, no way. I've got to contribute just as much as you have in yours. Uh, we need the same amount. And I know that's funny. It's all going in one big, big pot. It's just, you know, you're going to look at it a little bit differently. The IRS does look at it differently from RMD purposes, required yeah. minimum distributions that you must take at 72 currently. Um, but you want to make sure you get as much money out of it because if you're, if you're finally married, finally jointly, 
Um, I think some of these people, Lance, are concerned about, well, we're going to get divorced someday. Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> you know, I, I don't I know. Think, I mean, no, I think it's always funny because, you know, married couples is they get competitive about their IRA. They each have an IRA and they, they get competitive about returns. And even though they, they ask for different things in their portfolios, uh, one wants to be super conservative, wants to be more aggressive, and then they complain about not having the exact same rate, rate of return, right? So yeah. it, it's it's always funny to me is that that there's this instead of just working together on the same page, it actually becomes a competition. So I think I think most are on the same page that we work with. I mean, we've okay, been yeah. blessed with you know. No, they're really on the same page of getting there, but it becomes a competition, correct. right? Yeah. And I love that, right? I'd, I'd rather you encourage you to to max both of those out, explore every opportunity that you have, and fully fund, you know every type of investment vehicle that you can versus, you know, one being in the dark about it, not knowing anything about what's going on or what to do. But this is just one of those, you know, I'm not going to say it's financial illiteracy because I don't think it's that for many people. I think it's just been the easy way and the way that it's always been done and that these um, 401k custodians and administrators have just made it really easy to say, Hey, I'm not going to have to worry about it. It's going to go up each and every year. And we're just going to kind of keep on going down the road because it's not mm -hmm. broken. But people just don't understand that there is money left on the table when it's not coordinated properly, especially if you're not maxing them all out. Yeah, absolutely right. No, and this is one, you know, and again, just going back to the very basics of this. I mean, you know, if you're both working and you're both not contributing to a 401k plan at work and assuming you have one now, you know, this is and this is also the other big takeaway from this. Out of all the companies out there, only about 50% of companies actually provide 401k plans. So if they don't provide a 401k plan, you need to be thinking about other alternatives to save money as well. And so another kind of creating your own 401k plan. Like I got my annuity statement uh, yesterday and opened it up to see what my return was last year. So market was down 20% last year, 18% after dividends. My return last year was zero because the annuity that I have it is benchmarked to the S&P 500 index, but I have a cap rate on the upside of 7%. So if the market's up 10, I get 7. But if the markets are negative, I get a zero rate of return. So it's nice to see I've got this pot of money sitting over here in this annuity that you know is growing tax-deferred uh, with no risk. So I've got this, kind, and it's judgment-proof and has a lot of other benefits for being a business owner. But those are things that you can look at also if you don't have access to a 401k plan to start thinking about some other tools and options that are available to kind of create your own, so to speak, 401k plan. And so you can do those things. Well, I think it's about diversification of, of investment vehicles. You know, we talk about yeah, diversification of asset classes. But really what it comes down to is giving yourself that flexibility later in retirement to pull from different areas. Now, Keep in mind, you know, that those annuity distributions, those are going to be taxed as ordinary income later mm -hmm. down the road if they're uh, with after-tax funds, yep. uh, which, you know, your your pre-tax funds would be that as well. But it's kind of like, you know, a lot of people like IRAs inside these annuities, and, and you can use them. Yeah. Um, I don't think that you ever put everything in something like that. No, but no, absolutely not. You, you want to have yourself a lot of opportunities to, to withdraw from at some point. But you can have income riders that give you lifetime income. Um, there's a lot of advantages to using different types of these these vehicles at different times so that you have that flexibility later in life. You have the ability to know that you have a guaranteed set income or uh, some protection from the downside. But 
we typically don't recommend something like that for, you know, we hear these stories. Yeah. And I took everything I have and put it in this. <laughs> and then, oh, I needed some funds and I could only get X amount out. I had this yeah. huge penalty. I mean, no, and it's, and no, it's important. Like, for instance, you know, I have whole life insurance that I overfund. Um, I have this annuity that is growing tax deferred. I have, you know, I have money in our equity models that we run. Um, it's important to have, you know, these diversified pools of assets that give you both tax, pre-tax and after-tax advantages and an ability to draw money, like you said, draw money from different areas. But my point was in particular is that if you don't have access to a 401k, if you have access to a 401k plan, you should be using it, right? At least contribute enough to get the full match. If you're married, both of you at least contributing enough yeah, to get the full match. You're leaving money on the table if you're not. Yeah, exactly. It's just free money. And then you should think about, you know, and you can reduce your tax benefit of what you're paying to the government by, you know, fully funding your 401k plans. But those are limits, right? I, I can have a Roth IRA that I can contribute to, but I can only put in, you know, what is it, $6,500 this year? Correct. Yeah, $6,500 for, you know, for... Well, you, know, you it, my friend, can put a little bit more. In a Roth. Because of your age. Right. That, that's true. Because I'm 900 years old. Um, but the point is, is that those are like a Roth IRA is limited. And, and so if you're serious about saving money, that may not really kind of get you to where you need to be on an annual savings basis. And not only that, the income limitations are there. So many people exactly. can't contribute to it. So then they say, OK, where where do we go next? We have the, the emergency funds set up. We have a yeah. uh, funds for certain objectives. We're maxing out the 401k. Right. We've done the IRAs or we cannot do the IRAs. What's the next best thing? And that's where I think you need to start thinking is, okay, yeah. where should I be putting funds now that give you more flexibility later? And they can be multi-use funds. Right. And I, look, I got an email yesterday because, um, you know, I talked about recently that I used my overfunded whole life insurance policy to take out a loan to buy my house with at 4.4%. Um, got an email yesterday. Is like, well, you know, I like IULs because uh, indexed universal life policies, which you know have more very have you know more options to them, and that that's true. I don't like IULs personally. They're more expensive, and you have downside risk in the markets, right? So if the market declines in value, potentially, you know, have a decline in your net benefit. No. So, and and yeah, that's and, not true. and this is and no, in the value. But the point is, is that there's there's pros and cons to, uh, that everything that you have, there are pros and cons. VULs have, have that. To, index uh, yeah, index sorry, are going to be long. I'm sorry. Yeah. You're correct. Index variable. are going to be like the annuity variable. That's earlier. correct. I apologize. Variable. I, I missed. You're thinking variable, not index. You yes. like index universal life. We don't like variable. Variable Variables universal are much life. More Thank you. I misspoke. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, it's the like point is, 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 as I'm <laughs> as I'm wrapping up here. Thanks, Dan. Hey, man. Somebody's um, got to keep you in line. You know, basically, just there's a ton of options out there to help do your financial planning better and you need to explore all these and understand the pros and cons of each because you know everything has a benefit but there's a con to everything so there you go all right that wraps up the show for the day be back here tomorrow with michael Leibowitz. we'll cover everything the fed says uh today and what that means for the markets and your money of course we'll see you then get by the website michael Leibowitz's new article out today on the website realinvestmentadvice.com